Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome back to the Storybox. My name is Jay Phantom, and I am your host for this show. If you are a new guest or a returning guest, just want to welcome you and make you feel at home. I'm really grateful that you chose to listen to this episode of the podcast. Now, I have a confession to make right off the bat, um, but don't turn away just yet, okay? Because this this episode with Evan Borsier is a good one still. Um, the confession is, um, I made a mistake of actually overwriting the, my audio. So you can't hear me ask questions. You can't hear me respond to Evan at all. So the, the I think that might be a blessing in disguise. I'll let you guys decide that <laughs> if you want. Um, who knows? Maybe people actually like hearing me talk in the interview. I don't know. Um, but this time, unfortunately, guys, you won't be hearing me ask any questions so i'll kind of it's kind of like a mystery game in a in a way so i'll leave you to guess what kind of question i'm asking evan and you'll get to hear evan's response so thank you so much evan for giving us your time um i know you guys are going to get a lot out of it because i did when i was interviewing him as well Uh, he's got a lot to actually share with you guys he's a filmmaker cinematographer him He's also run a successful Facebook group, successful podcast, which I was listening to a lot uh, when he was doing it. So he had a lot of good guests on there that I was interested in in hearing from. Um, And he's just a genuine uh, sound guy. Like honestly, just speaking to him was a lot of fun. And we actually went over an hour and 45 minutes, which to this, to date, that's the longest episode of the podcast I've ever done. So um, we talk a lot, but I've actually cut it down because I'm not talking in this, so it's a lot shorter than what it was going to be. Um, but we, yeah, we get to talking about many, many different things, so you guys are, are going to enjoy, regardless of me actually being in the episode or not. Um, but let me know what you think. I, I really do apologize for um, for doing that. <laughs> it's an honest mistake. I won't do it again. Uh, I'll just it pays to read something before you go ahead and click the yes button because you never know could actually stuff it up in the end which is what happened to me but anyway guys i really hope you enjoy this episode with evan borsier without me yeah um okay cool let me just make sure that i'm good to go here this stuff all looks like it's working okay cool um yeah so i mean i got started um i guess shortly out of 
high school where I um, finished up high school and debated going to college for graphic design and uh, really looked into that and then decided that like I didn't want a bunch of college debt. <laughs> and so I ended up moving um, a few hours away from where I was currently living, um, which is Western Massachusetts um, in the United States. And uh, started sort of like interning at a church and had two random part-time jobs and was doing like design and, um, photo a little bit, but it all just sort of like, I sort of really fell into it, honestly, where I was just doing a bunch of stuff and really thought I was maybe most likely to be a graphic designer or something. And then really just landed hard in, um, I started playing around with video and found I was pretty good at it. And then, that sort of like turned into opportunities to the point that I was like, okay, um, you know, maybe I should take a real go at this. And um, so within like, I don't know, I think it was within like six months of sort of that move, I had ended up quitting both part-time jobs. I'd gotten a uh, DSLR for Christmas and I had made the jump to full-time freelance. And at this point I've been uh, full-time freelance for just about eight years now, just under eight years. So made the jump and never turned back and, uh, just sort of wandered my way through there. But I really fell into it just like starting with the whole, um, like church videos and nonprofits and weddings. And I've done a little bit of everything at this point. Uh, I got a Canon T3i. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's funny because I feel like that's sort of like generational, like uh, the people who are like one level before me, they all talk about like the DVX days and stuff. And I always felt like I was like a, I was showing my uh, I don't know if youth or like ineptitude that like I was I was already on the DSLR revolution by the time I got in. But now like up and coming kids, I feel like it's like, oh, I had like a Sony a6500 or something like they're all off the Canon DSLRs. And now it's like Sony mirrorless cameras. So it totally depends a little bit on when you came in. But for for me, I came right in on like I landed both feet in the like Philip Bloom pool because I feel like it was the peak of sort of his doing stuff. And that was really where I started too, where because um, I was like just living by myself and trying to learn stuff. And so, you know, going to YouTube and honestly, I mean, I would I, maybe it's bold to say, but I would say there wasn't a lot of like great content out there for like learning filmmaking compared to now. It was pretty thin. Um, but, uh, you know, there were like the Philip Bloom picture profile things of like, you turn the contrast down and you turn the sharpening down one or whatever it was. Um, so that was sort of where I, I first started finding information and that information landed me at a uh, master's in motion, which is a sort of like film conference thing in Texas. It's pretty small. It's like a hundred people, um, that goes on every December and I knew Philip Bloom was speaking there. And so, uh, went to that and that was just under a year into me getting the camera it was like 11 months in and uh, that was sort of my first real exposure to like real commercial filmmaking where there were all these you know people from bigger production companies and stuff and you know talking about all these jobs and people were like oh I'm a DP I'm a director I'm a producer what are you and I was like I don't know I just make videos um, so I was like yeah, so I feel like that was very much another sort of like wake up call for me where it was like, oh, this whole thing is a lot bigger and more complicated than what I've been exposed to so far, you know? Yeah, 
yeah, I mean, I think, um, I don't know. I think it's, it's a little, uh, how to say it? I guess I would say that like, I feel like a lot of the content at that season and 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 still to a large degree honestly it was very like predominantly technically minded in that it was very much about you know cameras and sensor sizes and yada yada and so like a lot of that first uh, you know few years for me I guess but especially that first year or two you're just ingesting a lot of this like baseline technical information and I feel like that's what a lot of people were putting out and they're sort of talking about you know highlights and shadows and getting the most dynamic range out of your dslr because they all suck at that and like people are magic lantern hacking 5ds and stuff and so it was very like it was very technical and i feel like i got it it allowed me to get a good grasp of the technical quickly but it was like sorely lacking in the like how do you actually make compelling content thing um and so i feel like that's where when I look back on like that season of my filmmaking, there's some stuff that like looks good and maybe is like, or looks good for what it is. But, um, it was all sort of thin at the end of the day where like, I didn't really understand storytelling. I didn't really understand like cinematography. I didn't really understand a lot of anything. It was more just like uh, slightly hyped up videography of just like music montages and you know whether that was a, a commercial or an event video or whatever else it was all sort of music videos <laughs> at the end of the day um, and so I think that was for me the big gap that I had to start figuring out was like okay like it's easy to see all this stuff online that like looks really good and it's easy to a certain level to just figure out how to make stuff that looks good um, as far as just like getting your hands on the gear. But so then for a while it was always like, oh, I wish I had better gear. I wish I had better gear. And then you get to the point where like you have the best gear and like your idea still sucks. And so then it's like you, you hit that plateau of like, okay, I've got a red camera. I've got whatever. And like my stuff still doesn't look like the guys I really like, or this piece still isn't as compelling as the stuff I really like. And so then I feel like that's where the next level of really like, okay, now I have to understand the like craft of this where I've been more of a technician to this point and now I have to learn the art a bit more. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess as far as like what I personally find compelling, I think things that um, either like challenge the way that I think about things or that allow me to like experience um, ideas and feelings that maybe I, I wouldn't experience otherwise or haven't experienced otherwise. Um, and so I, cause I feel like that's where there are certain things that are like challenging, especially more on the like film, film, like narrative film side, but there's a lot of stuff that falls into even the like music video or commercial or whatever else world that I think is just excellent in that it like generates feeling really effectively and there's there's sort of a joy to that that is like you're on the roller coaster and you ride it and you get off and you're like that didn't like change me but that was still a fun little ride you know and so I think that's something that I started really grasping sort of as I went into the commercial world more um, and less into like narrative film was like what are we trying to say 
Um, how can we give people a little ride? Like, what's the arc? And and to me, that's the, the thing that's often missing. Um, you know, I used to do a lot more, I guess, like online film education type stuff. And uh, people would send me work to critique. And I feel like one of the most consistent critiques that would come up is just that, like, there's a lot of the stuff in, you know, X, Y, or Z piece that people would put out that's sort of like it's serving no purpose, you know, where it's like what well, this is a sort of a shot of nothing. And like your your opening premise is sort of nothing. And so it's just like it's it's a thinly veiled shell of like pretty pictures. But half the time, even the pretty pictures don't really mean anything. Um and so I tend to, like, approach the work I do very much from, like, a, okay, let's start foundationally. At, like, what are we trying to say? And how are we trying to say that? And where, what are the, like, various conceits, uh, conceits from a filmmaking perspective that we can make to sort of sell that idea? And I think that when those pieces really come together, and some of them are abstractions, right? And I think that was something that, like, I didn't understand starting out and part of that was just a lack of experience, but I would see these things and it was like, I don't know how you come up with these ideas. Like it seems so out there almost. And I think part of that is experience. And part of that is realizing that like there is a value in just putting pieces together where like I'm, I'm working on just like a music video as a personal project with a friend um, this month. And it's sort of about, um, the song is about an artist's sort of experience with um, with quitting drugs, but so just starting to build up a world where we go, okay, like how can we like visually represent this in a different way, and um, and so it's like replacing the drugs with a woman, and then being able to say that like there's the there's his dream world of what he thinks it is and that's where the woman lives and then you have the reality and then we're sort of glitching back and forth between those things but it's not um I feel like a few years ago when I was starting out it would have just been like what's something visually interesting and abstract and cool that we could do and now it's much more like what is the like deeper story we're actually trying to tell? And even if at the end of the day, it just seems like sort of this cool abstract sort of surreal music video, there is like an underlying meaning and things that were thought about there and things that go down to the level of like in his, in his chasing the drug world, everything's great. And so he's sort of in this like sunset field and it's all on steady cam and he's very smooth and he's chasing the girl. And then drug world is like, blue and harsh and handheld and it's just like the reality he doesn't see that his world's falling apart and and i don't know this may be just me rambling and talking about nonsense but like those are the kind of creative things that were really hard for me to grasp early on because it was just like well i know how to properly expose my camera but i don't really know like how to take a song and come up with a compelling music video which leads you with just a lot of um moody visually impressive handheld anamorphic performance videos that people do uh, myself included you know I, I leaned heavily into like a lot of just filming musicians performing stuff early on and it was a good way to stretch the visual muscle but then really trying to dig into like okay but now how do you make something that actually makes people feel something and I think that's the thing that's just to me that's the thing that people would be well served to work on sooner, especially as the technology becomes more sort of democratized is like ev everyone can make pretty pictures at a certain point. You know, like I think there's still a difference between like a really good DP and a kid with a camera. But I think the thing that really sets apart like uh, 
um, excellent filmmaking and a lot of what's out on YouTube is just like how much thought and effort and story there actually is and how much of it's just sort of like here's sort of a thin idea that we were able to run around with a gimbal and execute, you know? Oh, man. I mean, I think it's something that I'm still learning a lot. I would not say that I'm good at it. And it's sort of an interesting thing for me, too, because, like, I primarily work as a director of photography now. So, like, I don't get to stretch that muscle as often as I would if I were, like, a full-time director. But I think that it's still a skill that's very valuable to have even just in how like if a director you know brings me on for something and there's already creative laid down like to be able to sort of play yes and with that and to say well what if we did this what if we did that so um I mean I think part of it has been working with skilled people like just the experience of collaborating with talented directors and sort of seeing their process um I think that's helpful I think paying attention honestly like just like whether it's um, sort of dissecting things that are compelling to you, whether that's commercials or music videos or movies or whatever, just taking the time to really contemplate, um, like what you liked, what you didn't like to try and think about what they were doing and why they were doing it. Um, you know, I think ingesting a lot of stuff, I've just been to, a number of like masters in motion events and whatever else that slowly some of these ideas have started to seep in. Um, and then even honestly, I think a lot of it is like real life experience that it's like, um, I mean, some of it too is I have done some amount of reading on like screenwriting and storytelling. And I think those are really valuable. Like if you're going to take the time to watch hours of YouTube videos on like the various codecs you could record it record in, you should probably also read a book about screenwriting if you're into filmmaking. Um, but I think that, you know, some of it's even just like, um, I was listening to a podcast today and they were talking about, um, it's not it's not like a film podcast or anything, but they were just talking about um, the Enneagram, which is sort of this system for personality types, I guess, or something you'd call it. And they were they were talking about sort of like how, you know, people tend to fall into these different types. But then it turned into this side conversation they had where they sort of did a character study on like characters from different movies who would fall into each of these nine types. Um and it's sort of interesting because, again, it's just another tool in the toolbox now to go, okay, like if I have to make up a world and we're going to sort of play, you know, say whatever, come back to our theoretical music video here, what type is this uh, artist? And then like what are the decisions they would make based off of that? You know, and so and then how can we sort of lean into those things? And so I think some of it is just like, exposure to life <laughs> as silly as it is and I think that was something that also like I uh, didn't realize at first and I feel like I'm really realizing now is just that like I mean I'm I'm very much thankful for the work I've done and I guess in a lot of ways proud of the work I've done but I've also just realized that like um, all great art is generally the result of like a lot of work and so I don't think you can expect to make like super compelling stuff maybe even in the first 10 years of doing something you know like if you're a, a musician you're not gonna like write a number one hit right off the bat unless there's some sort of magic there like even these guys who get picked up and um, do really well on the radio like they were doing music for a long time before that happened 
Um, and so I think for, Right. And even a lot of these filmmakers that you'll hear these like supposedly breakout stories, you talk to them and they're like, oh, I worked at a TV station for five years and then I was at an ad agency for two years. And then I started doing like freelance, you know, commercial directing. And then like a year and a half into that, I got a big break or whatever. But like they were doing the thing for like nine years before any sort of big break happened generally. Um, and right. And consistent and experiencing and I I always personally use the terminology of like getting reps in. It's just like if you wanted to be a really good baseball pitcher, like you're going to have to throw a lot of pitches. If you want to be a really good guitar player, you're going to practice a lot of scales. And in the case of like, let's say commercial filmmaking, because that's most of what I do, like you're going to have to shoot a lot of like crappy commercials <laughs> and before you start making anything that's like really compelling and I think to me there's a certain amount of comfort in that that's like if this isn't garbage that's a good sign and like if it's not gonna go you know whatever like win a whatever some crazy commercial award that's fine like it's just it's just uh it's doing the best of what I have right now and like those other pieces will come but, you know, even you look at the guys who are the quote unquote young guys who are doing well in Hollywood right now, like the Greg Frazier's and Bradford Young's are still like 40 and have been doing it for 20 years. You know, it just th those guys have shot a lot of bad movies you never saw in order to then shoot the last five movies that are really big on their IMDb. And I think that's just a a thing that people need to accept is like you're going to put the work in and you should learn these skills and you should pay attention to things and you should like do the research. But you also just have to accept that like you don't become an Olympic level at anything in three years. And so filmmaking is no different. <laughs> I think I used to more. And I think that's maybe part of, um, you know, I mean, I don't mean to sound like a downer about it, but I feel like there was definitely a season where I was sort of just very much like, oh man, like the work I'm doing is not sort of like up to the level of like the people I really look up to and like, is that a problem or whatever else? And, um, and that was where sort of slowly coming around to this side of like, Oh no, they like a lot of these guys have a lot more time in it than I do. And some of it's just different, right? People have different, um, exposure to different things. People have different opportunities. Like you can't expect it to be a totally even race, um, necessarily. But I think for me, like, just being willing to sit in on the long game a little bit more and to say that like what I get to do is super cool. And like, if I ever get to the point where I'm doing it at that level, like that's great. But right now the level I get to do it at is still crazy. And if you had told me eight years ago, you know, when I just had my DSLR and was figuring it out that I'd ever get to do it at this level, I'd be like, that's, that's the peak. You know, like if you told eight year, uh, eight year earlier me that you'd like, own an Amira and all this stuff and just be able to like make stuff for fun. That would be like the dream, you know? And so I think that's something that I try to remind myself is that like, I've already accomplished the dream and like anything past this is gravy. And then another reminder is that like, even on the worst days, it still beats coal mining. You know, like if my big, if my big beef with my job is like, this idea doesn't make a ton of sense and the agency wants it brighter than I do. And blah, blah, blah. it's sort of like grow up. Like people have way bigger problems than your like creative fulfillment on every single job. Like the idea that I get to 
show up and like make a make pretend world. And even if it's a boring bank commercial to me and it's not as cool as like some of the stuff that people are posting, like one, everyone's doing it. And so big whoop. And two, even if you were to be like, Oh, it's not all, you know, music videos or whatever else. It's like, yeah, but I also get the opportunity now to like do that stuff for fun. And I think I've just come to accept that like at a certain point, um, like the filmmaking I do that's really for work and to pay the bills isn't always going to overlap with the filmmaking that like I do for fun. And that's totally okay too. You know, that like I can just go and do what the agency wants and the director wants and everyone's happy. And you know, the, the semi snarky thing I would always say is like, if the client's happy and the check clears and everything's okay. Um, but at a certain point it's true, not that you're going to like phone it in, but like do the best of my work, but even do the best of my work if it's not always my personal favorite thing. And then if I can like take the ridiculous equipment that I own, you know, compared to me eight years ago and go take some of my super talented friends. And like I did a music video earlier this year and it was like one of the most fun days of production I've had all year and I didn't make any money on it. And our budget was like 500 bucks or whatever and so we paid a friend to bring some lights out and stuff but the the ability to like go have fun with like a ballerina and a musician and a real track and to like bring all this gear and make something really cool uh it totally makes up for like the crappy bank commercial you know and not even uh, not even uh i don't know i've there's all kinds of different there's always things you can nitpick about every job and i think something i've also experienced which i'd always heard other dps like talk about on podcasts is you hit this point where like um everything's bigger than it was like you start getting hired for more stuff that like has budgets and has agencies and whatever but it's like in this middle ground where there's an agency involved and a lot of the times like the edit doesn't go the way you want or the grade doesn't go you the way you want or whatever. And so it's sort of like, then you hit this funny season of like, I don't like my real work because it's bigger is more managed by more people than me. Whereas when it was like smaller, I sort of had a lot of creative control. And so it's a, uh, it's just a funny world where like the budgets are bigger, but I'm not always as proud of the projects. So then that's where like the personal projects I think become more important. And you do get a few jobs th uh, each year, hopefully that slip through and you're, you're happy with, but uh, it was sort of funny to hit this point where like, I'm doing more big work than I ever was. And I show less of my work to people than ever before. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I, I think that's really real. I mean, uh, for me personally, I've been taking November off Instagram for somewhat similar reasons and partially, you know, just a general uh, sort of detox from social media. But I think that that's so true. Like, it's funny. There's a, there's a DP who's relatively well known, I guess I would say, if you're sort of in this circuit, who does a lot of like really good commercial work, um, really good music video work. I think he like won VMAs this year and stuff and, you know, has an agent, does a lot of great stuff that people see. And uh, earlier this year, I think it was, a friend sent me a call sheet and this, you know, big DP was doing a commercial for like a local mattress company here. And it was one of those like, those frames are never going to make Instagram, but the you know they'll they'll uh milk the couple music videos and and you know few commercials that do but no one's showing all the other work but even the people who you think are like 
always shooting on Panavision lenses and the coolest stuff. Like those guys are all doing normal work like the rest of us too. So it, it, it slips, you know, where it's like the, the bad jobs get better and the good jobs get better, but there's always bad jobs even when you're, you know, up at a really high level. Yeah. Well, I think even those guys too, I mean, I admittedly, I'd be curious to actually ask them like how they feel about it. And I think they're probably okay with it in the same way that like, I'm relatively okay with the quote unquote bad stuff. But even those guys, like a bunch of big like Hollywood feature DPs shoot commercials in their downtime. And I doubt every commercial they're like, oh, this is my best work. They're probably like, ah, oh, this is like a generic agency day. Like I don't even really need to be here because the crew's so good, you know, and the look is so set that everyone can just execute it. So I'm just here to show up and get paid. And that's fine. You know, like uh, that work happens for everyone. And I think that's, one of those things that's like when you take a little bit of pressure off yourself sometimes and be like, okay, maybe maybe this is an interview in a white-walled room and maybe we can all, you know, sit here and gripe about it. Or maybe you can say, how can we make it as good as we can? And it is what it is and, like, let's get it done and move on. Um, and, you know, someday the cards will go the other way and you'll get a great location and stuff. But it's so easy to get caught up and like, oh, I don't have the – gear and crew and time and location and everything else and like rarely do all those fe uh, pieces put together so you sort of got to just make the best of it yeah we actually just sold the amira this week so i'm officially not an owner of a big camera right now a mirrorless yep yeah the super secret film cast eh, no i shut that down i sort of i honestly took a big step back from like all of that i was really burnt out personally and i had uh I don't know. It was like the crux of a lot of unhealthy stuff that was going on in my life. So I ended up shutting down the Facebook group, shutting down my YouTube thing, shutting down my Patreon, shutting down the podcast. Um, and I just sort of forcibly pulled the plug on everything. Um, not because I didn't love doing it, but just because it was sort of like it had it had reached a point of like influencing my life more than I wanted it to and I think I was too I felt too like beholden to the audience and sort of controlled by the audience which is probably my fault more than theirs but I had to sort of like break that tie and reset myself um where like my relationship just with both my quote-unquote real work and sort of this side internet work had gone way out of whack and I was just like not effective because I was so busy you know if I wasn't working on a project I was on the Facebook group or I was trying to set up a new podcast or I was trying to always have something going on and make bigger and better things and at the end of the day like I love doing the podcast and I love all those things but I don't love them enough to have them take up that much time and so that was where I just needed to be like I need to step away from this for a while and you know, uh, that was where I quit Instagram. I, un I found some app that unfollowed everyone on Instagram and just stepped away from it for a while. Um, and just sort of did a hard reset for myself. And it was honestly really good for me, but yeah, I have, I've not come back into it yet. I'm actually just starting figuring out potentially getting back into the, uh, podcast game a little bit but it would probably be for non-film related things like I have a, a few friends who would be interested in doing one together but it'd be a little more general listener and less film specific yeah I got to go to the uh the games this year and work sort of with the uh you know x media team technically they were all like let go in the last year but um they're doing sort of an independent documentary now so it was a part of that which was really cool um but yeah, I don't want to get too far from your original question, I guess, which was more about cameras. Um, 
So I started out with the T3i, like I mentioned, um, and just had that for a long time. I was renting a lot of the time because, again, like I was, you know, when I first got the T3i, I was 18. I was super low overhead, you know, ramen noodle life and uh, living in a friend's basement, basically. And so um, was just focused on like making stuff again. Didn't really care about making a lot of money cause I didn't need a lot of money. Um, and so it just kept sinking money back into it. But so I'd rent stuff for projects a lot cause I didn't have the capital to like go out and buy better gear. But if someone was like, Hey, here's $800 to make something, it's like, okay, well I'm just going to rent $800 worth of stuff. <laughs> um, and so that was actually how I got connected to Lens Pro to go was cause I was just renting stuff from them all the time. Um, and they were like, Hey, you, uh, you know, you are intelligent, I guess, you know, I don't know what they saw in me, but for some reason it was like, you, uh, are capable of articulating your, your thoughts on these things. And you seem to, you know, be able to learn about new equipment quickly. We lost our, our internal video person. I would like to do more content. Would you be interested in doing that? Um, and basically, you know, I was like, sure, why not? So I started doing content for them, which was, uh, you know, at the time I'd been renting 5Ds mostly because I was still doing um, a lot of event stuff. I was doing some nonprofit work. Um, I went to Haiti a few times and, um, yeah, just working with, a, with like child sponsorship and medical trips down there and stuff. And um, was doing some like work for this college called Mass Maritime Academy. And that was more eventy still, I guess, where it was like they would have whatever graduation or something. We do videos. Um, but so it was renting five D's and stuff. Um, and then, you know, start doing content for lens pro. And basically, you know, part of the gig was that like, as an employee, quote unquote, you get access to the stuff if it's not rented. And so then all of a sudden I had access to all this gear that I didn't really have access to before, as far as like C three hundreds and cine zooms and lens pro. I mean, at the time lens pro didn't have that much actual like cinema stuff like they do now where they have like anamorphic lenses and minis. Now back then it was like the C three hundred was the big fancy camera, you know, but still compared to my 5d it was a big jump and even just being like uh you know they had some lights and stuff and so i was quickly able to take some like lower budget stuff and sort of like make it decent but i was i was driving two hours back and forth to lens pro all the time just sort of making things and still not making money honestly you know i was still just sort of sinking the budget but um making stuff as good as i could so after a while i ended up um getting a C100 from Lens Pro to go. It was like a used one out of their inventory. And that became sort of my personal A camera that succeeded my uh, T3i. And so that was my next main camera. Um, but then bigger jobs, you know, I started doing some work with a friend of mine, Chris Fenner out of Atlanta. We did some stuff for um, ESPN and stuff. And that was where I started getting exposed to like the red cameras where we'd shoot on the Epic sometimes and uh, stuff in that world. And, uh, excuse me. Um, so I started, I was always shooting on a little bit of everything, I guess, between lens pro and they had like the, uh, FS 700. I remember I used for a little while when that was a thing. Um, but so no, it's, I mean, it's horrible. It's typical. I mean, I I'll be controversial and say that they're all horrible, but they're just different degrees of horrible. But like the, uh, the ergonomics of the FS seven are up there with black magic, uh, the original Blackmagic cameras, which were just like a brick with a touchscreen on the back of it. 
the FS700 is just like a longer brick with a little flip screen on the top of it, on the back for some reason. Um, yeah, it was all horrible. But so, like, was doing that for a while, was just making my C100 work, renting stuff when I needed it. Um, and then it was really, I don't know, I guess it was probably three or four years ago now that I ended up making the decision that I wanted to buy a uh, red Scarlet W. And so that was sort of going to be my, like, first big jump, like, out of... I mean, the C100 is still prosumer almost, I guess I would say. Like, it's not really a a cinema camera. It's sort of in that, like, wedding world. Um, and so trying to make the jump to red was a big thing. But I had, like, saved up some money and um, was interested in making it work. And so I ended up doing that at the time. I was also sort of transitioning into trying to like be a production company more and like DP less. And so I had partnered with a friend of mine as a, who he was producing more and we tried to do more sort of like direct to client stuff. And long story short, did that for about a year and it was horrible. Um, I was not ready to like run a production company. Um, yeah, it was just it 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 didn't go well. Part of it was again I that was when I was really spooling up all of my like internet stuff and the internet stuff was going great and the production company stuff was not going great and so that was part of where I was like I just need to like shut all this down because I am not in a position to be teaching people about how to do anything if I can't do it. Um and the red just played out horribly for me personally, where it was whatever. It was like a 20-something thousand dollar investment, and it ended up, I swear it made me like less than $3,000 in the time that I owned it. And so I was just like, okay, I need to get rid of this thing before it uh, depreciates too much. So sold it to a buddy of mine um, and then was sort of hanging out with another local DP friend who didn't have a camera. And I was like, you know, I'm selling the red this week, and... We were actually just, like, playing Xbox one day. He had come over, and we were, like, playing FIFA on the Xbox, I think. And he was like, we should buy an Amira. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, yeah, you know, I, I do a lot of these, like, network jobs, sort of, like, ESPN, Golf Channel, whatever. And they, like, rent Ari cameras all the time. I, I usually get, like, at least two weeks of rentals, so that'll pay for, like, half of it. Like, you will probably get enough days, and, you know, why not? And so we started looking around a little bit, quickly found a friend's a uh, friend in New York who was selling one and it seemed like a good deal. And so we ended up going halvesies on this Amira, um, which was interesting. It was sort of like intimidating to figure out the going halvesies thing. Um, but we, we, I trusted him enough. He trusted me enough. We sort of like wrote out all our contingencies enough where we talked it through and tried to think of what all the worst case scenarios could be. And so we ended up owning this Amira and, Long story short, like the Amira was the best gear decision I've made in my career so far, and I don't know that I'll ever get another one like it. Um, it just paid off really well. We caught it at a great time as far as like what we um, paid for it and everything. It really fit like the kind of work that we were doing, which was appropriate. Um, it has it had the advantage of being like a tier above what a lot of production companies owned. So even production companies that like owned C three hundreds 
you know, a lot of the times they'll have like in-house guys or stuff. But then if they were calling us, it was because they like needed the quote unquote bigger guns. And then I was like, oh, the bigger guns come with the bigger camera. So we'll hire you and the camera, you know. And so like whereas the red a lot of the times was in this specifically the Scarlet W, I feel like was in this tier. of People are like, I don't know if that's like the best thing. Like it's sort of OK, but we have something that's sort of OK. So we don't wanna, like pay a bunch of money for something else that's sort of OK. Whereas like a lot of even directors are just like, oh, an Ari, like, you know, an Alexa, that's what we want to have our stuff shot on. So if we can afford it, let's make it happen. Um, and so I feel like that was part of how it um, played out well for us. But we tracked everything um, because we basically the way we did it was we took the purchase price of the camera. We split it down the middle. So we each paid half um, and then we would put all our rentals on a spreadsheet and um, we would split the rentals in half, whatever we got. So if you got paid, whatever, half of it went to the other person. And we basically just looked at it as a straight up like business investment with each other. And so you got, you put in half the investment, you get half the return, you get half the risk. It all just plays out that way. Um, and that ended up working out really well. We, our deal that we quickly figured out was that, um, if we did have clashing dates that whoever could get more money for it got to take it. So that was sort of the, uh, cause the other person gets half of it anyway. So it's like, well, if you have to rent something, you can either use your half or, you know, production will just pay a r rental house instead of you, but you don't really lose out in that situation, you know, cause you were only ever going to get half anyway. Um, and so that was how we did it. Well, so not really. So that's part of the thing that was interesting about it is like we never really rented it out outside of ourselves. Like there were very, very few, like there were one or two friend jobs where like friends had personal projects and were wondering if they could rent it. So we like rented it to friends for like two or three days. Um, and there were two, I want to say two features that went out on in like the middle of deep slow season for us, which is like January, February, where there were like Hallmark Christmas movies filming and uh, they were looking for another camera and like through a connection, we basically put the Amira on it for like three weeks and you get like four or five days of a rental out of it because it's crazy feature budgets, but we didn't have anything else going on. But for the most part, it just went out with us on jobs. Um, and so I guess just the way it played out, like there were enough days that um, he was getting called that needed a camera or I was getting called that needed a camera and we did a good enough job of getting it on there that it just did a lot of days and I feel like it sort of sells itself and again just like was appropriate for the kind of work we were doing where there weren't many times that they were like actually what we need is something else like there are the few jobs that maybe were under that sometimes but even that didn't happen hasn't happened honestly lately as far as I'm concerned like I haven't been asked to shoot on quote-unquote worse cameras very often um and so it usually just worked out that I mean there have been a few jobs that like we would you know squeeze the rate sort of because we'd rather have our camera for a lower rate than them go rent like a fs7 you know or something um but for the most part, it was just like if we get hired and we can bring the camera, then we do. Um, and it just sort of accumulated into a bunch of days. And I guess it was the last two years or slightly under two years that we ended up having it. So technically, that's a great question. Technically, I don't know. That's like something that uh, we, I think, legally I did. I think that like the bill of sale when we bought it was written to me. 
and the bill of sale when we sold it was written to me as well um but we never really looked at it that way as long as we had it i guess um so that's a great question that i think we're still asking ourselves to a certain degree um the the real honest answer is like it there's a lot moving right now with like the fx9 and the c500 mark ii and there's a new re sensor coming out in like january february and there's just all these moving pieces of like where's the camera market gonna land there's a rumor of a 6k full frame like ursa mini pro type camera um there's like there's just a lot of stuff that would all be really interesting and um i think we both sort of felt like we've more than made our money back like it's a good time to sell it's going to slow season for us like the winter's always slower in this part of the world and so we're just like ah we'll like if we're gonna if we can find someone to buy it then it wouldn't hurt to let it go and then if in some crazy world in like five months or three months or whatever we like change our mind we can probably just get another one for more for probably less than what we sold this one for you know so it's like there's not really a big loss um it's more just like let's liquefy it while we can hold the cards for a little while and then like as we get back into busy season we can figure out sort of what we want to dump our money into um and so we listed it not expecting to find anything soon and then like relatively quickly had a guy pop out, pop out of the woodwork who was like hey i have a job in like two weeks that i really want to put this on um you know can we figure it out and so he ended up coming up from louisiana um and buying it and so we did the handoff uh thursday of last week i guess and of course immediately we both had like seller's remorse <laughs> i was like what have we done but um i think i still think it's the best thing really like so quentin owns a venice now which he had parked at a rental house for a while but is more holding on to so our plan is to just sort of like shoot everything through slow season on the venice and then see what what pans out um but dude, the venice is the best i mean i would personally love to just stick with the venice um it's like it's yeah it's to me it's way more interesting than just about anything else out there i mean like the mini lf is cool because it's an re camera and like you know it's just gonna do well because of that but the venice is just such like a swiss army knife camera that as far as like an owner op situation goes i think it's pretty hard to beat because it's like it does full frame it does super 35 it does 6k it does 4k it does uh anamorphic it does spherical it does the rialto thing if you really want to make it little and do hard mounts or put it on a gimbal like it sort of can be anything you need it to be um the internal nds do one stops which is great like it has xlr inputs so it can be a dot cam sort of like the amira can like it's all it ticks all the boxes for me personally um you know i think the only box the two boxes that it doesn't tick well are like if you really want something small it's not small but it's not that much bigger than like a built mini or a mirror in my opinion um and it's expensive so that's the other like you got to figure out if it's going to make sense for you um but that's sort of you know that whole tier is like that and i think that's part of where the amira worked out really well for us um was because we were able to get in at like a lower price point than if we were able to go in on like a mini or something. But I didn't feel like we were 
losing out on money we could make compared to like a mini. And that's where at the end of the day, like for me, I don't know if this is where you were uh, going with it, but I guess I'm, I'm willing to be transparent on it is like, it's really a business game as far as I'm concerned. Like it's cool to have a camera that you really like and that makes great images, but there are like tons of cameras that make great images at this point. Like I have a black magic pocket six K and the thing's freaking insane for what it is. Like it, you couldn't tell that in the Amira apart 99% of the time. Like, I couldn't. They're, the ability to shoot Amira-level footage with a $2,500 camera is insane to me. Um, you know, it doesn't have a PL. It's great. I mean, it, it the image-wise, I don't think it's beatable. I think it's better than the Ursa Mini Pro or anything. Like, it looks great. It's got little camera quirks, you know, battery life isn't great. I don't like rigging up little cameras. Audio inputs are okay. You got to deal with external NDs, you know, just sort of the typical stuff. And even like little things that I have taken for granted since having the Amira, which is like handheld, it tends to be sort of jittery just because it's a little camera. Um, but as far as just like the sensor and the codec, it, it looks freaking insane for what it is. But, you know, past that, it's like okay so if you want to get something that looks crazy you can get that um so now you have a world that exists between like a venice or a mini lf and the black magic pocket 6k and more or less they all look more than good enough you know i guess is the the argument you can make so now it's not really about like what looks good it comes down to like what are the usability features you need to do your job well and what are your clients willing to pay for it um yeah, I mean, I think that comes back a little bit to where I was about to go with just, like, the business of it. Um, for us, the way it played out was, like, if we had chosen to rent, um, you know, we maybe would have had a little more potential camera flexibility. But we also maybe would have, like, lost out some consistency because to what you're saying, like, I, I got really comfortable with the Amira where, like, I just could work really quickly with it was really comfortable exposing it like just got really dialed in with it and was always really comfortable with what I was getting out of it where like there were a few times that I had to shoot on other cameras and I was like I think this is good you know some of the other stuff just gets a little tricky where you're like I don't know how this you know Sony stuff is going to play by the time it gets through a grade or whatever and so like um one of the nice things about owning the Amira was like we were pretty much guaranteed to work with it, which was nice. Um, I th the the thing that I see a lot of people do though is like they'll buy a camera, whether it's a red camera or a mini or an Amira or whatever, and like they don't really have the work to support it, and then it just becomes this like really heavy financial burden of like you're making a payment on a loan or something and you're not really getting the jobs to sustain it and so you either end up just like throwing it out super cheap to try and get some amount of days on it or you just end up screwed you know like there are a lot of people I've seen who have been like yeah I've had a red camera for five years and it's still not paid off and that's just like crazy to me personally um so I think it takes it requires taking a really hard look at like what what's actually gonna like pay for itself in a decent time frame um and then like what am i i gonna get out of it and so that's one of those like you know for me one of the things i love about the amira is like prores is really easy to work with it's really easy to like shoot log and monitor 709 we can burn stuff in if we need to like it's just quick it's easy there's no uh, confusing anything with it workflow wise like any production company you can hand off 
RE7, uh, RE log C ProRes and they'll figure it out. Like it's never going to throw anyone for a loop. Um, but I think, you know, for me early on in my career, like I didn't have the money to put into buying anything, which is why I had a T3i for as long as I did. And then I had a C100 for as long as I did. It was like, I just, I didn't, I couldn't carry the risk of like taking a loan out and I probably couldn't have anyway, honestly, cause I had like no credit history and was like 20. Um, but so I just sort of needed to like wait until I had cash in hand and then rent cameras with that. Um, you know, if you're working more as a DP, it's a little different where like production's paying for it or whatever. I don't think there's anything wrong with renting. I mean, the thing that I would be comfortable saying, I guess I was just pulling up our spreadsheet. Um, so we got it in January. Um, and from the time we got it to the time we sold it, it's listed as having worked for 165, 166.5 days between the two of us. Um, which totals out to $131,975 American, which is a buttload of money. <laughs> um, thanks, man. I mean, and I don't really say that to like, it's no pat myself on the back or whatever, but I mean, the, if we had not owned a camera, that's $132,000 that would have gone to some rental house. Um, and so for me, when I look at it, it's like, okay, this is a potential income stream. And honestly, like as, as we go on to bigger jobs, sometimes there's less opportunity to bring your own camera at that level too, where it's like, they're just going to rent everything from a rental house and the ACs want to check it out. And like, they don't want to deal with your personal garbage. Um, but like for the tier of work that we were doing and are doing now, there's enough stuff that's like a travel job where they're more than happy for you to just fly with your own stuff that like, it makes sense. And so you have to be sort of in the right gear level for the level of work you're doing for it to like pan out well. Um, but I think if you can line those things up, like if I had bought an Amira five years ago, I, it would have been an entire waste of money. Um, but like f to land on it when we did, it worked out really well. And, you know, by the time we split it or whatever, we like make 60 grand each over the last two years, which isn't a ton, a ton of money, but it's like an extra 20, 30 grand a year that you'd be missing out on otherwise. And so like, for me, that's worth the investment easily. Um, but there's also like, I just think you have to really think it through and make smart choices. And so that's why we don't have an Amira right now is because like the market's changing. We're curious to see how everything plays out. Like, are we going to a world where, you know, FX nines are really good and mini LFs everyone like the asking rate for mini LFs right here right now, I think is between like two grand and $2,500 a day, which I just don't see a lot of productions paying. Um, and so it's like, I'm glad I, that's why people are like, are you buying a mini LF? I'm like, frick no. Like that's the, it's not going to work at all. Like I'm, and I'm not going to put the camera out for a quarter of what it should go for. So like that doesn't make sense for us to own. Um, and so, but if like there's a world where if the FX nine is super killer, like all these Amir productions start just doing that and getting like 600 bucks a day for it or whatever. And so that's where sort of like in this volatile time, we're just sort of waiting to see how it plays out because it's like, well, if that's the thing to buy and it's going to do well, then that's what we'll do. Um, but yeah, you just, I think you have to sort of read your market, read your clients and the work you're doing. Cause there's another world where like, there's a lot of guys who just do tons of like gimbal heavy stuff that like an Amir would be miserable for them. But it was perfect for us. Cause we get hired to do tons of like easy rig doc style stuff. And those productions love that camera. So 
you really have to like pick the thing that's gonna gonna work for you and I think you also have to like be in a financial position to make it work because I don't think it's worth like over leveraging yourself or anything um but I think if you like have the capital and you're able to make a smart decision and, and pay it off and then and then honestly I think too like if you're able to pull out at a good time um which is I think part of where we were at is like this is a, a good enough time, which, I mean, that's one of the crazy things about, like, high, higher level cameras, I guess, compared to some of the other stuff is, like, my C100 was worth nothing by the time I would have wanted to sell it. My T3i was worth nothing by the time I would have wanted to sell it. My red depreciated a good chunk in the, like, year that I owned it. We bought the Amira for thirty four grand and we sold it for twenty eight. So it was, like, it didn't cost us that much to own it for two years, you know? Um, and so that's another one of those, like taking an educated guess at like, what is it going to cost me to buy this? How long am I going to have it for? How many days can I get in that time? What's it going to cost for me to sell? Like all this basic business stuff that we don't learn as filmmakers because we're busy learning about codex, like do an actual business assessment of your investment. And, you know, I think if you do that and you make a smart choice, hopefully it pays out for you. That's a great question. Um, I have had a few people who have been bold enough to like call me out for stuff. Um, and that's been like really hard, but really valuable. And I think I've honestly never had like consistent people like that in my life. And I think part of that is being in sort of a very like out of market world. Like I was always, not always, but like for the most part, I'm the biggest fish in the area you know outside of like a few friends of mine who were all sort of at the same level like there aren't a lot of like more experienced guys around and so it sort of leads to this position of like the the people who are ahead of you are like somewhere else and so you don't see them that often um but I did like I was on a job once actually um with a guy and it was like a bigger job for a big music client and um he sort of like did a really good job of sitting me down because I was like a camera operator and I had been like posting some like behind the scenes stuff on my Instagram story or whatever. And he was like, Hey, uh, if you're going to do that, you should be really clear about like who the DP is and that it's not you because otherwise that's like a really bad look. And I don't think I like meant anything malicious about it, but it was like a really good lesson and of course it like hits you in the gut when they say it and you want to like defend yourself and be like oh I wasn't trying to be sneaky or whatever but still like it was a really good lesson and like be clear about your role in things and and now you know going forward I've seen so many times that people are very vague about what they're doing um because they're trying to make themselves look good or whatever else and so like that was a an example I guess of where like there have been a few people at various times. Like there was another guy at one point who um, I was spending some time with. He was like a more of a creative director at an agency, but we had like gotten lunch and he was uh, going through my reel actually. This was a few years ago. And he was like, um, you should, if I were you, I would take this like car commercially type stuff you did out. Um, because like as an agency person, there's like certain uh, subject matters, whether it's like jewelry, food, cars, whatever, that like, there's sort of a right way to do it. And if you can't do it right, it just doesn't work, you know? Um, and so like you, it just plays as if you got a nice car for a day and tried to make something with it, which is what happened. Um, 
but like it doesn't it turns me off to hiring you to actually do that kind of work because I'd rather not see it and then hope that if you got all the resources you could do it the right way than like see that you've done it the wrong way you know um and so like I feel like there have been different people and little little uh cherry-picked moments of advice that I got challenged on stuff back one year that I was at Masters in Motion really early on um Vincent Laferre was critiquing reels and I sent my reel in um and I think the the two biggest pieces of feedback were like I don't necessarily need to see like Randy uh, random pretty shots so much as I need to see like a skill set and I can see that you're like really good at natural light documentary style cinematography but like that seems to be the extent of your skill set and then the other piece was um as a director, if I'm watching a reel, I'll judge you by your worst shot, not your best shot, because the worst shot is the shot that you still thought was worthy of your reel. Um, and like that was another just really good sort of gut punch of like, okay, what am I, what am I putting out there, and um, what am I sort of taking ownership of? So that's sort of a roundabout way of saying I haven't really had a mentor, but I've had a lot of really challenging stuff sent my way, and I would love for that to be a, a more consistent part of my life, but I've never really connected with more experienced people consistently probably mostly to my own fault but I would love to <laughs> yeah totally and I think that's part of where like something else that I learned very quickly was that like as I started working with crews more and stuff where I wasn't it wasn't just me I would try to like get the most experienced people I could and I would try to like set myself up in a position to learn from them. And so even early on when I was sort of like mostly doing the one man band thing, I started getting a few like slightly bigger budgets. And so I like hired my friend Chris who was like had done some actual DP work and he came and worked with me and like it was really an excuse to just sort of like watch how he did everything and learn a different way of doing it than I had done things. Um, and then I feel like that's carried on where generally like even now um, at the beginning of any job I do like commercial or whatever I'll generally grab my whole department whatever it is if it's two guys or if it's 10 guys and be like hey um, you know it's it's my job at the end of the day it's my butt on the line and so like I have to have a plan and I have to solve the problems but you guys are hopefully all very good at what you do and that's why you're here and so if there's ever a moment where I suggest something and you think there's a better way of doing it like tell me the way you'd rather do it and if there's anything that you think we should be doing that I haven't said like just start doing it don't even ask me about it and I think that just having an attitude of like I'm not necessarily a hot shot and there are lots of great people to learn from has exposed me to a lot of things where like the number of times that you could just have a plan and a setup and like tell your gaffer this is what I want to do and they would just do it versus like if you ask them like hey this is what I'm thinking what do you think there's some really talented and experienced people who will come up with stuff way better than you especially if you don't have 30 years of experience um and there's a huge way of learning like even I I admittedly sort of chuckled. I was on this political commercial, uh, I don't know, like two months ago, I guess. And um, the director and I show up to set on the first day and we're like meeting the crew because it was an out-of-town thing. And um, there's a guy in like a sport jacket, a tie. He's like balding with a white mustache. And I was like, dude, I swear to God, if that's our gaffer. And it was. Um, and the dude was awesome though. But it was one of those like, <clears throat> I think I've had 
both experiences where like sometimes you get the like older guys who are like you don't know anything and you're an idiot which is probably fair honestly like i've learned to just accept that yeah i probably uh you probably should be doing this but i am so i'm just gonna you know own it for what it is but um just sort of very quickly like learned to again sort of gave him the speech and asked him some questions and picked up some really great little stuff from him honestly and he had been you know gaffing since the 70s and he's done a lot of like food styling and food spots for like walmart and all these big brands and like the dude had just a wealth of knowledge and just to sit there and talk to him was a really great learning opportunity and so like anytime i can get on set to learn from experienced people and I'm getting paid to learn from experienced people like you know I'm still in charge of like what's our overall aesthetic what's gonna fly what's not gonna fly whatever else but like we had this interior and we didn't have a big lighting package on that where we had like a sky panel a light mat uh, a joker and that was like sort of it for like LEDs and stuff and so he was like oh well the truck comes with like all these little tungsten lights like what do you think if I do this? And I was like, dude, knock yourself out. And he very quickly had like these four tungsten lights and he gelled a few of them and dimmed a few of them and broken up. And it was like awesome, but it was totally not like I would never have jumped to like, let's pull these, you know, old tungsten Fresnels off the truck. And it was just a really good example of like giving someone rope and they are like happy to do what they're good at. And it was a, a good reminder for me too, honestly, of just like, the value of having little stuff on the truck like that, like budgeting for jobs like that, where it's like, well, we can't get six sky panels, but we can get a whole kit of tungsten things. And, you know, they're, they're still very, very valuable. So that's my long, long winded answer. But I think I've learned more on set than I ever have from YouTube videos or anything else, honestly. Well, and I think there's a bit of like theory versus reality there. And I, you know, I try to, I try to do my best to check the ego at the door. And at the end of the day, like I'm, I'm nobody in the world of uh, filmmaking or whatever else, but there have definitely been times that you're like on Facebook and you're like in an argument with someone and you, and I just want to be like, show me your work. Honestly, like I like, I get that you've watched a lot of YouTube videos and spent a lot of time on red user, but like, if you haven't actually done this, you just don't know what you're talking about. And I don't, again, not that I'm somebody, but like, I do think there's a big difference between some of the like keyboard warrior culture of, you know, I've, I understand this and I understand the bits and bobs and tech and whatever else, but like, there's a big difference between, you know, even some of the arguments people get into about lights and stuff that are just not at all uh, related to like, yeah, and it's just not how a real set works. Yeah, I think that's like, I think that's another big thing that like, I definitely, there was a steep learning curve on the difference between like, you know, starting out and doing everything and sort of conceptualizing and shooting and editing and you know whatever else and then starting to work with teams that you know maybe I was in charge of but like I was the end client and then starting to work in a world where like okay there's a client and there's a director and there's me and then there's a team and <clears throat> just that whole dynamic of sort of like being a department head and like having a set run well in that like you're delegating well you're informing people well everyone has the information they need but they're not being overwhelmed with information they don't need the client and agency feel taken care of the director feels you know in sync with you um you know that's a whole different thing than like coming back to sort of that like anyone can make a reel that's like a bunch of pretty natural light stuff like 
your ability to like go out at golden hour or blue hour and pop off decent looking stuff is different than your ability to like manage a shot list and a client and client expectations and keep the crew moving and make sure the talent feels good and like just to do all of that and have a good vibe and have a good attitude is like sometimes that's more of the job than even the making stuff look good you know i've been on days where like the g and e team can run themselves like you've got such a kick-ass gaffer on there that it's like this dude can light stuff without me micromanaging him and like my ac is so on point that i don't really have to touch camera and so half of my job or 80 percent of my job becomes just like making sure everyone feels good you know um where we've done all the work on the front end and now that we're on set it's like little stuff it's making sure that everything's moving smoothly it's making sure that like the clients having fun it's make you know it's all this sort of stuff that's less about like me being super micromanagey about where a light mat lands and it's more about making sure that everything's cohesive making sure that everyone's getting what they need out of it and that everyone feels good um and like that's that's just something that i think takes time too you know you don't you don't learn to lead a team from like watching youtube videos and then going out and making music videos by yourself Oh man, um, filmmaking or in general? In in general, um, I mean, I I'm really passionate, I guess, to to what you said earlier about fitness lately. Um, for me, I've found that it's something that just affects my overall um mood and health and effectiveness. Like, I feel like when I am healthier, I'm more creative. When I'm um, in better shape, like I work better, I'm mentally sharper, I'm operating better. Um, so I'm, I'm, per and I, I honestly love competing. Like I always loved competing when I was younger. And so I sort of like, when I took that big step back and like shut down all the internet stuff, my health was a big thing that I was trying to figure out cause it had just gone down the tubes. Um, and so I personally peaked right around like 260 pounds, which was the biggest I'd ever been. Um, and was like, I need to do something. So I just started running and like lifting at whatever the like generic local gym was. Um, and then sort of got very bored and that was right around when I found CrossFit, um, and I know, you know, CrossFit's a cult, people get hurt, whatever. I was always the guy making fun of CrossFit before, but I came around um, because I just really liked, I really enjoy the community, I really enjoy the competition, and I think it, it can be done poorly like anything else. You know, there are tons of runners who get repetitive use injuries. There's statistically more injuries from uh, pickup basketball. Everyone who plays pickup basketball as an adult blows their knee out. Like every guy I know ends up with a torn ACL. But anyway, all that to say, you can get hurt doing anything. I have yet to get hurt doing CrossFit. Um, but so I'm really passionate about just sort of like training and finding ways to challenge myself. So like this year I really wanted to try triathlons. And so I did a few sprint triathlons. Uh, the goal now is to run a 50 mile trail run with friends next year. So that'll be interesting. Um, but it's, it's always something I I'm passionate about fitness. Um, passionate about my dog. We got a dog last year. Um, or earlier this year, I guess I keep forgetting. It's not next year yet. He's a mutt. He's a rescue, but we got him, um, DNA tested actually because you know we're that extra I guess but he uh he's mostly border collie like visually he looks like a border collie they thought he was a border collie lab the DNA test came back that he's like 75% some combination of like 
herding, hounding, and something else dogs, which I think are all genetically similar enough that they couldn't really pick out exactly what it was. Um, but he's like 12.5% Chow Chow and 12.5% American Bulldog too, apparently. Um, but he's just like a border collie, collie mutt. He's like 50 pounds, which for us is like the perfect size. He's not like a little lap dog, but he's not huge either. And super smart, super, uh, loving and playful, but also super chill. So he's been a really fun addition. It's weird. Like if we like take him to, and he has to like be at the vet or the groomer or something, it's almost like the house feels empty when he's not around now. Like you just get so used to it. Um, so he's, he's been a great addition to life. He was initially a very taxing addition to life. The like waking up at 3am to let the puppy out. I thought I was going to kill him for a while. Um, but yeah, it's like having a kid or something. I mean, I'm sure having a kid is totally different, but it felt like having a kid or something. Um, (laughs) I feel like you probably have more grace for the kid and you don't want to like kill them as much as you want to kill a puppy. But, um, (laughs) yeah, man. But yeah, I mean, it, it totally paid out. He's, he's totally worth it. I would go through the, the miserable first little bit again to, to be where we are now. But, uh, other, otherwise, I don't know. I mean, I've been pretty simple lately. I feel like for me, I've just been trying to, um, simplify things in life more, which is part of the like step back from social media. I intentionally sort of slowed work down a little bit this time of year just to, focus back in a little bit on my health and relationships with friends. And, um, I think just, you know, to work on some creative stuff, which is where like the music video that I mentioned is coming from and stuff, just intentionally creating bandwidth to be able to do that as well as, um, you know, figuring out like what, what do I want next year to look like? And what do I want to say yes to? What do I want to say no to? And how do I be proactive about pursuing that? Because I think historically for me, it's been easy to just sort of like, um, throw a bunch of stuff in the air and hope that something sticks where it's like, I'm just going to keep putting out stuff on Instagram and, you know, whatever else and hope that good jobs roll in. And I've slowly come around to like, okay, I'm going to spend significantly less time on Instagram and uh, significantly more time being intentional. And so whether that's like reaching out to production companies that I like, or like going and getting lunch with directors or just like, I think, in a lot of ways we have more control than we think we do. And we tend to just sort of leave, or at least I tend historically to leave it up to like, we'll just hope that the the pieces fall together. And so just trying to sort of look at next year and go, okay, what have I done? What do I want to do? What do I want to be different? And how do I actually make that happen? Um, And whether that's looking at gear or jobs or relationships or whatever else, it's sort of right now is a season for me of just sort of, looking big picture and and seeing where we're going to head next. Yeah. And I think I would, I'd like to think that some of that'll come back, you know, and I think, um, part of it for me was sort of the like rebalancing everything and just allowing myself to have some more experience to bring to the table. Cause in some ways I, I think I felt and still feel a little bit like I feel very blessed to have gotten the opportunities that I did to talk to the people that I did. But on the other hand, I sort of, I'd rather have that conversation now than two or three years ago, you know? And so just being willing to be patient and be like, okay, I don't need to necessarily like put my bright ideas out there right now. And I just need to like put my head down and do the work and get better and get more consistent and have more life experience and be willing to be content. And then 
then is the time that maybe I can have more conversations on Mike. But right now, you know, I'm sort of putting the cart before the horse and like putting myself in a position that if I really try to look at myself objectively, I don't know that I'm ready for three bits of advice. Um, I would say number one, you are neither better nor worse than anyone else out there. Like if you see people who seem super talented, good for them. If you think you're super talented, good for you. Uh, but just like wherever you are is fine and you need to, you know, neither have a chip on your shoulder nor put yourself down any more than necessary. So just be like willing to go out there and take opportunities as they come. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, a confusing one, I guess, but, um, two would probably be, um, be patient, like be patient and realize that this is a long game, you know, um, don't, I see a lot of decisions made that are very clearly short term and whether that's relationally or whether that's, um, financially or whatever else, like if you're making gear choices or financial purchases, think long term. If you're going to, um, post a project on your website, think long term, like, I know that right now, you know, you got to cam up on this set that looks great and you want to put it on your website and be vague about your role. But like that DP is going to burn you so hard if you do that. Like you just it's so easy to not really think about the consequences of what you're doing. And at the end of the day, like as good as that frame would look on your Instagram or whatever else, like the uh, the relationship that you're going to have four years from now with all the people involved in that is way better. And those chickens will come to roost too, you know, where it's like if you put out that you're sort of better than you are, more experienced than you are, like have fun being thrown into the deep end and having no clue what to do. So I think to to realize that like you don't you don't want a million dollar commercial right now you just want to do what you're doing and that's okay so just like be patient and play the long game and the great work will come but it takes time um and then the last piece third number three would probably be um honestly it would probably be like to maintain as much financial freedom as possible throughout as much of the process as possible because this is very much like a feast or famine business um and when you you know again you take out a big loan for some gear you you do whatever else you you know big house fancy car now you're either gonna put yourself in a compromised position or you're going to have to say yes to work you don't want to take or just bad things happen um and so I think that's something that I personally, I still feel very strongly about. And I talk to friends of mine in the industry about it and you'll hear people be like, man, you know, whatever, like just, just frustrated or whatever else, whether it's slow season, whether it's the work they're doing. Um, and I think like leaving bandwidths to be able to maybe say no to a job that does pay well, but be able to take something that is creatively compelling or like I've turned down some big jobs to work with directors that I really wanted to work with because like the new director relationship was more valuable to me. And, um, you know, for me personally, I've so far made it through this thing without any debt and I'm very glad to not have any debt. Um, 
So I don't think it's it's necessary, you know, and I sort of try to orchestrate the rest of my life in such a way that like I ni- I like nice things, but I've also seen people, you know, you start doing work at a higher level and getting access to whether your rate goes up or your direct client projects get bigger and you like get a big check and your first thing you want to do is blow it. And it's like for me, I try to always have a really good pad um and that comes into play too, even coming back to relationship thing where it's like, if you get a big job and you have to rent gear and pay crew, like no one likes to work with the guy who's like, I can't pay you until the client pays me, you know? And so I've always personally taken the attitude that it's my my responsibility to be able to float all of that whenever that comes through. Um, and I think that that has made people enjoy working with me because they get paid promptly and it's not an issue. Um, but then also that I'm able to say yes to the jobs I want. I can say no to the jobs I want. I don't get freaked out during slow season. Like you can just ride that wave. And the whole thing is significantly less stressful if you aren't under some like huge financial burden. And so if you're going to play the long game, uh, you know, I think just keeping yourself in a position of not being over leveraged financially is probably far more important than people realize that it is. And it gives you the opportunity uh, to, to say, like if there's a job that comes through that is like really creatively cool, you can put some extra firepower behind it. Whether that's saying that like I'm willing to cut my rate a little so production can afford the lenses I want or whether that's, hey, there's this low budget thing and I don't have to make any money on it because I'm okay right now. Like it, it allows you to, uh, you know, take the money and run still on some jobs to be honest, but that when those things come through that like, our our opportunities you can really capitalize on the opportunity whereas if you're like i gotta make rent this month you know then it's like i need to walk with as much money as possible and do this as cheaply as possible every time which doesn't lead to the best work in my experience um that's a good question i mean i've got i've got some stuff that's like all moving around i feel like this time of year for some reason is like the time that people have the hardest time locking down dates and so like i had i got called about a job that was supposed to be um er yesterday originally like when they first called me like a month ago they were like hey can you do the 10th and it was like okay sure um and then they were like hey we're gonna push it a little bit and so then it was gonna either be like the following weekend or something and then, of course, as that got closer, they were like, actually, we're going to push it into December. And so, like, I've got this, like, football commercial thing that is uh, in December, potentially, you know, assuming it doesn't evaporate, which sometimes those things evaporate. Um, but then otherwise, I'm working on this music video at some point in the next, like, week and a half. We just look uh, location scouted for that today. So locking down a few details and then doing a music video and then... Um, I don't know. I've got like a little like corporate thing in Boston that I'm doing, I think towards the end of the month, which is honestly just one of those sort of like take the money and run jobs. It's like easy, easy talking heads. It's like a half day basically. And we'll just probably go kick it out on the pocket cameras. Um, and then I just got called the other day. Actually, this is really unusual for me, I would say. I got called about like a March job, um, which usually I only find out about stuff like a week to maybe like five weeks in advance. 
Um, but I got called about a thing that uh, it would be a big travel job. And so they're, they're still bidding it. And so they were calling me about rates and whatever. Um, but basically the call I got was like, Hey, what's your March look like? And I was like, I don't freaking know. Like <laughs> I'm still, I'm still waiting for people to lock December dates. Like you're way out there. Um, but they were like, we might have a travel job. That's like Berlin, London, Singapore, Tokyo, something. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, uh, so yeah, so we'll see that, that they're like, they took all the numbers and they're bidding the job still now. And, but, uh, that wouldn't be bad because it's like, that's still sort of slow season. And so if I could sort of like guarantee some days in that time, I, I wouldn't be mad about it. But that's where like this time of year just starts to get weird where like, you you know, March will start popping up, but then December will look empty. But then like three days before a job, you'll suddenly someone will be like, hey, can you shoot this thing in December? Like it's super random for me. So I'm pretty used to my calendar looking pretty empty, but usually stuff still pops up. And if it doesn't, I just enjoy the downtime. <laughs> Thank you, Evan, for coming on the Storybox podcast and sharing your stories with us. I really do apologize once again for my mistake and for you guys not being able to hear me talk uh, throughout the episode and asking the questions. But what did you guys think? Were you able to get something out of his story and engage what he was saying? Uh, let me know in the comments. Um, you, you can roast me. I'll give you permission to do that. So what, what were you doing, Joe? What were you thinking? Um, it, it's okay. I promise you that next week's episode will be a lot better. Uh, but these kinds of things do happen. You do make mistakes as humans and you do learn from them. So I've learned to actually read the message that pops up on your screen asking you if you want to actually overwrite this or not. And me and my tiredness and naivety thought that it would be a good idea and I get a new file and, you know, you know all, all those uh, dead tired things. So, yes. so thank you all once again for your, your grace. And um, if you made it to this point, uh, please share around every episode that you feel like you can use or or help other people with. Um, I know a lot of people um, were talking about Andrew Scipione's episode and how they were encouraged and, and blessed by that one. So please go and, and share that one around if you feel like you did get something out of it as well. Tag all your friends and your family and get the story box out there, guys. Um, there are a lot more interesting and exciting episodes to come. I promise you that. I've been working very, very hard um, to get very, very um, encouraging, inspiring, motivating, educating, educational, I should say, better English, Jared, um, stories for you guys. So stay tuned till next week. Um, until that time, guys, don't forget to share your own stories around. Thanks, guys. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.